Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. The hardest thing to do, the hardest recipes to do are the simplest one. Can you make something delicious with 23 ingredients and a sous chef? But yeah, I really value how hard our developers work to, to take something and make it so delicious, but it feels really effortless. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Genevieve Coe is a deputy editor of New York Times Cooking, as well as a prolific cookbook author and collaborator. Here we have such a great time catching up about all things cookbooks, food media, and what it's like to help run one of the best and most popular sections at the Times. We talk about her collaborations with chefs like George Mendez, Pichet Ong, and many others. I really love catching up with Genevieve, and I hope you enjoy this talk. Genevieve Co. welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you in. I just want to talk about your, your career at the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, writing cookbooks. We can talk about recipe guys. We can talk about lots of things. I was reading your LinkedIn. I like did a little LinkedIn snooping, and I noticed you worked in college, college admissions at Yale and Caltech. I did. What? What? That job sounds so fascinating to me. <laughs> what was that like? It was so fun. I really, really loved it. So it was the first job I had out of college because I had actually worked in the admissions office as an undergraduate. And um, and every year they would hire a few kids, um, you know, out of school. And so I had applied for that and, and had also applied, obviously, for a ton of other jobs as a senior. But, um, but yeah, when that offer became available, I thought it would be mm-hmm. really fun and interesting and fascinating. And it absolutely was. And it yeah, it was a really, really great experience. So were you like reading essays? Were you giving essays grades? Were you like one <laughs> of the people who decides if someone gets into Caltech? Uh, yeah. So but it, at least when I was there, it was all done by committee. Yeah. So we each were given, um, we each had certain regions of the country and the world. And we would read the applications, the full applications of all yeah. the students and um, and then discuss them and um, but, you know, that was only part of it. Uh, another big part of it was a lot of outreach. So a lot cool. of, yeah, a lot of outreach to get people to apply. And then also once kids were accepted, spending a lot of time to um, convince them to come. And Wow, that really humanizes the the process to me. Like, yeah. I, you think of it as like a bunch of bad news, but it sounds like you did a lot of good. Well, there there is a lot of heartbreaking <laughs> bad news, and that was always sad and hard. Um, yeah. But at least when I was there, I think it's changed a bit just because the number of applications has increased so dramatically. Definitely. But it was a very individual process. Like, you really got to – felt like you were getting to know every kid. So legitimately, like, like being honest, did you ever, like, weight someone a little higher because they mentioned food in one of their essays? <laughs> If they wrote about it in a really compelling way, 
I have to confess to be like, well, this is a person after my own heart. Okay, let's get to your career at the New York Times, Los Angeles Times. So we have had Emily Weinstein on the show. We've had lots of editors and lots of writers, and and we'll get into many of your colleagues because we read them all the time. But I want to always hear about how you got to the New York Times food section. You're the deputy editor of the food section. How did you end up at the New York Times? It's funny because when I was interviewing for this position, the HR person had asked me, um, she said, well, why the New York Times? And it was, you know, it was something like, why now? And I was like, no, it's always been. And and actually, it's it feels a little bit full circle for me. So um, I had started my very first job, you know, out of college, was in, in college admissions, and I really enjoyed that. And, and it was during that period of time where, it finally occurred to me that my lifelong love of food could actually be a career. And so I was in New Haven at the time, um, and I went to a book signing by Mark Bittman. And we just got to chatting about his books, his work, his work at the Times. Um, and it just ha- it just so happened that he, you know, at that time was getting tons of big deals and had so much to do that for the first time, he felt like he might need an assistant. Um, and so... I actually um, got to work as uh, his assistant for some time. You know, I was still working my full-time job because I had to pay rent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and Mark did pay me. This was after the huge success of How to Cook oh. Everything. And, and he he had gotten a few other book deals that were going to be these other big tomes. Um, and so, you know, I was New York Times adjacent-ish. And it was a great education. And it was all while I was, you know, uh, working in restaurant kitchens as well in terms of learning cooking. And, um, and it always seemed like just the most obviously wonderful, amazing place and and just getting to know his work through, you know, getting to know the place through Mark's work. And um, yeah, it was always just a dream. Obviously, it was always a dream to to write for them, to to be there. Um, and, you know, it's okay that it takes some time. How many cookbooks do you have under your belt right now? What's the number? I think it's been at least at least 16, but at a certain point I lost count. 20, we'll call it. Backing up though, because I will get into your work currently at the Times, but I want to know like, why write about food and cooking? What drew you to this kind of topic? Well before, obviously, the foodie culture swept America, you, you've been doing this a, a minute. Um, yeah, why? I have always, always loved food. And I've always, you know, not I can't say always loved cooking because I was a small child at one point without the ability to cook. But um, but I was that kid who would prefer watching cooking shows to cartoons. And and that sounds that's a very common thing, I think, for kids to say now. And I guess I'm dating myself. But I think I might have been sort of that very last generation of people who I didn't fall into food per se. Right? Like I very intentionally wanted to try to pursue a career in this. But it did start as this like, huh, like maybe mm-hmm. this would be something that I could actually do for a living because I've – I've just always loved it. You know, I was raised in a family that really um, loved eating and loved good food and and loved um, exploring it. But actually, neither of my parents really cooked. Interesting. And probably part of the reason why I did. Um, yeah. And, you know, I came up in – I grew up in L.A. And at that time, the L.A. Times food section was massive and amazing. And, you know, I remember – those are my we used to have to do current events where you clip out stories from the paper and present them each week. And I would always do food stories. And, yeah. Um, and it was interesting, though, because, you know, at that time, there certainly were people exploring all these different cuisines. But I felt like I was almost living this parallel life of eating. Um, I grew up in Monterey Park, mm-hmm. which people now know um, for its Chinese food. And it was 
I was grew up on the side of Monterey Park that was closer to East LA, and so there's always also this amazing, um, so much amazing Mexican food, and and there was just so much delicious, wonderful, amazing food um, at a time when you know other things were happening in food in America. And obviously, as a kid, I didn't have any consciousness around this per se, but but certainly when I was in college and graduated from college and started thinking about food, and and this was in fact what had sparked my initial conversation with Mark um, at that book signing. Um, I realized that, gosh, there's a lot of food that I know so intimately that was out there, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and people were starting to write about it. But it was always from the outside in. Um, And I felt like, oh, um, I have this perspective that's from the inside and and know of these dishes from the inside. Um, And... And that was, you know, that was part of the motivation. And and the other part of it was just, I love it. Yeah, I loved yeah. it. And I thought, well, could I make this happen? Like, could this actually become a reality? I wasn't sure. Um, there wasn't any clear-cut path to it. Um, but So when you're talking, this is, Genevieve, really interesting that you you kind of pinpointed something that we all now as, as editors and writers, we really try to tap into writing from the inside out and trying to actually get the real story or through the voices of the inside, right? We 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 do we write about many different cuisines and taste and and throughout our journalism. But this is well before. I mean, parachute journalism was was common in food writing at the time when you started writing it. So when you ta- made these initial conversations with Mark, and when you ended up working at Gourmet, we, I'd like to hear about that. Were there any like dishes or stories like I need to write about banh mi? Like banh mi was the, this like dish that no, I'm making this up, but like. There's dish that you know isn't really being covered correctly. Was there something that you really thought about early in your career that kind of you unlocked? There wasn't any one particular topic, but there was sort of a whole category of food that I wanted to cover, and and to be really frank, still very much want yeah. to cover now at NYT Cooking, which is I knew just from my upbringing that there's this whole array of dishes that. We would cook and eat at home. I mean, it's, it's not fair to say my parents never cooked. Obviously, they they cooked because we had to eat. But you know, or there's this whole array of dishes that I knew in my Chinese American community growing up. They were very common. Like we all ate them, um, but they weren't necessarily the dishes that you would see on Yan Ken cook. He's an amazing, an mm-hmm. amazing chef. But that's a, he, he's a chef, right? Yeah. So so he was doing chef dishes, and um, and even if he was doing homestyle dishes, right? They were. Uh, a bit different, um, but there were just yeah. There was this whole genre of of dishes that we ate all the time, like just every night. And and my elementary school, like where I grew up, the kids were from all different places, um, uh, and you know just all different backgrounds. And they would bring things for lunch. And I didn't go to a school where anybody was made fun of for what they brought. Yeah. If anything, I remember one time I felt so bad. There was a kid who was you know he. People laughed at him for bringing a bologna sandwich. Nobody <laughs> understood, like, what is that that you have? Because oh everyone else had rice and beans. And so I sort of knew that this, there are all these dishes that existed. Mm-hmm. And um, and I thought, gosh, it'd be nice for other people to get a chance to, to cook them and try them. So there wasn't any one specific one. But I do remember one of my first, or my very first recipe for gourmet was one of those dishes, um, which is just a Chinese, it's a stir-fried tomato and egg. It's so simple and it's so delicious. But at, at that time, um, it wasn't that commonly known. I'm not even sure. I mean, yeah, Francis Lamb did it for, for the Times, and I think it's been out there a little bit more now. But it wasn't like, oh, I'm, I want to showcase this one dish. As a Chinese dish, as like an iconic dish, it was not really being discussed at the time. 
Yeah, because it wasn't something that you would necessarily like order at a restaurant. Let's talk about gourmet because you were there uh, near the end of gourmet's run. What was that like? Did you have an expense account? I did not, but it was. Oh, my goodness. It was amazing. So I was editing. I was sort of straddling a few different things. I was brought on primarily to work on books. So at that time, you know, I was doing a lot of books and there was Mm -hmm. an arm of um, gourmet books. So I was brought on primarily to work on books. And at that time, there was still a real effort to expand um, uh, on the web, on the digital sides. There was like a cookbook club. And Mm. so, um, and then in terms of for the print magazine, um, I wrote the display copy for the food oranges, so the head notes, you know, heads, decks, and like the, yeah. Um, and it was just, it's such a wonderful, brilliant, talented team of people. And I learned so much, like I just learned so much and I had such a good time and it was really, yeah, it was amazing. It was really amazing to get to explore food, um, in that way. It makes sense now that I know this about your career that you segued into collaboration and you've written so many books and I want to get into them, but that gourmet period when you were doing the books for gourmet, did you kind of, you had talked about your love of, of of writing about food, but now, did you fall in love with cookbooks at that point? Oh, that was before. Was I had before. always loved cookbooks. Always yeah, loved cookbooks. I, had, okay. I was, I would just go and sit in a bookstore for hours and hours and hours and, and flip through them. And then, you know, you have to choose your very special, <laughs> which one you're actually going to take home. This is pre-Amazon days. Or yeah. Anything. Well, you went on to write books with uh, John George, Seamus Mullen, Katie Button, Carla Hall, and all really interesting people that we could get into. But I want to focus on two in particular that I kind of was introduced to your work. One was Pichet Ong's The Sweet Spot. I love Pichet's writing. Talk about that book in particular, what it was like working with Pichet on like a really progressive idea of of dessert in a dessert cookbook. Yeah, absolutely. So Pichet and I actually met um, through Jean-Georges when I was working on Jean-Georges, one of the, the first cookbook collaboration I did with him, which... It had started actually with I was just assisting Mark and um, and Mark just got super busy so um, finished up that project including the desserts mm-hmm. chapters and and at that time Pichet was a pastry chef um, at Spice Market, Spice Market yeah, yeah. Um, you know when we were working on those recipes together I think part of what we really enjoyed was that we had this shared connection of these flavors and textures in desserts that he was really introducing to the sort of high-end, you know, Mm -hmm. New York dining scene, but that we had really both grown up with and known really intimately, um, both in Asia as well as in America. And so, you know, we just started talking and we realized um, there wasn't really a book out there. And so, um, so we decided that we would collaborate and, and, and do one together. And it was such a fun project. It was really, really a good time. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine. I, he wrote for me when I was uh, an editor long ago at Food Republic. He, I loved collaborating with him as a writer. He's quite a good writer. Yeah. Uh, and the other book was George Mendez, My Portugal, which I loved so much. That book is special. Oh. The photography is top notch, but George just getting into his mind and the way you were able to collaborate with him. How did that one work out, that collaboration? I just decided to walk into Aldeo one night and sit. You know, I didn't even have a reservation, so I just sat in that front room. And mm-hmm. obviously I'd read about his food, but I hadn't had a chance to go yet. And just eating it, there was just so much soulfulness in, in the food. And it was it was delicious, you know, sort of on every account. But there was so much heart in it, right? You yeah. could tell there's something more there. And I think I went up to him, like, you know, in the middle of service, like, and yeah, I think that, I think that is what I did. I think I straight up just walked up to him and was like, just hey, like, 
yeah, we should. I do cookbooks. We should do a cookbook together. Well, Genevieve, this was well before Porto and Lisbon became these mecca yeah. tourist destinations, yeah. and really a pioneering book to kind of crystallize yeah. Portuguese cuisine in Portugal, but also in the Connecticut. Yeah, yeah, right. The American yeah. side of yeah. it, which yeah. I haven't read anything like it since. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's not. It was. He's from Danbury and, and yeah. that area, but um, we also went to. Um, you know, what is uh, Newark, you know, mm-hmm. has a number of places. And we didn't actually make it to Massachusetts together, but there's also a co- big community in Massachusetts. And, yeah, it was really amazing. And um, and I'm glad that I had the chance to go before Portugal sort of blew up as yeah. as this travel destination. We sort of joke, we joked about it a little bit like, oh, do we, do we do that? Because when the book came out, we did all these pieces for like food and wine and mm-hmm. travel and leisure and all this stuff. Uh, but it is such a wonderful country, and I'm so glad that it's, yeah. I've had the pleasure of visiting a few times, and I think you maybe did. I think that that book really got at least the editorial side thinking about a a destination. We love Spain, of course. We love France and Italy and the Med. Let's kind of head towards Portugal. I got to ask you about collaboration because you have authored your own book, but you mostly collaborate, and it is a real art. And and we've had, you know, J.J. Good on the show. We've had plenty of collaborators. Describe what it's like to collaborate with a chef. Probably it depends on the person. Oftentimes the hardest part is just scheduling. I've really enjoyed it because I I really like being able to tell people's stories. Um, and I love being able to tell people's stories in their own voices and in their own words when they don't have the time or, um, you know, or inclination to. Mm-hmm. But there's so much to tell through their food and also through, um, yeah, through the stories that they have to tell. And, and so I, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, it's... Listen, like, have there been tough projects like the like the ones that you don't know about? But I have considered it such a privilege, actually, like really to work with all these people because I've learned so much. It's basically like getting a master class, cooking class with phenomenal chefs who have such expertise in a particular area. And I've learned like so much of the cooking I've learned um, has come from these chefs. So I did, you know, I cooked in a restaurant to start to learn learn the basics and just to learn about cooking. But yeah, I, I'm almost like embarrassed. Like it's it's so it's such a privilege like to stand next to Jean Georges and his like yeah. his lieutenants and then, you know, I'm furiously taking notes the whole time. It, it's it is the greatest gift. I'm I'm happy you bring that up because I think what we do is such a privilege to be able to experience behind the scenes at restaurants or in home kitchens of just like learning. It is a constant evolution as a home cook. I, I feel that way. Is there is there a cuisine that you really want to work on? I know you're a full time staffer now, and we get into your day to day and your times. But is there a cuisine you really want to collaborate on in your future? Gosh, you know, I haven't done a collaboration in a long time, and I'm yeah. not sure if or when I will again. And it's really, again, it's just about timing. It, it takes a lot of time, and it takes a lot of flexibility, um, neither of which I, I feel like I have right now. But, you know, there there are, yeah, there are huge swaths of the world I haven't covered that I would love to be standing right alongside, you know, someone who's really an expert in any cuisine from yeah. Central or South America, from, uh, you know, the Middle East from South Asia. Yeah. There's so many places in the world where it would be. Yeah, there's so many. I want to get to your average day-to-day at the New York Times because, you know, we've had your colleagues on. We have Eric Kim, Pete Wells, Melissa Clark, Priya Krishna, Emily Weinstein, as mentioned. And each have kind of had a different story about their day-to-day working at the New York Times. And I, I keep saying the New York Times, and I, it has to be said, it's truly the top of the mountain when it comes to food writing. Like, it is 
were inspired at Taste Every Day reading the recipes, but also the Wednesday section. Tell tell me, what is it like day to day for you? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, as you were listing out the names of my just wonderful colleagues, it's like, oh, we each have such different day to days. We yeah. really do. My day to day often is meetings. Those meetings really, you know, they range from obviously editorial meetings, but um, so I'm, I'm an editor for both the food section as well as NYT Cooking. So we also have meetings with the product side, mm-hmm. and um, and then obviously just chatting with uh, writers and recipe developers and the recipe editors, and just yeah, coordinating with photo editors, <laughs> coordinating yeah. with everyone across the board. So so during the day, that's what it is. I try really hard to schedule time for story editing or recipe editing, mm-hmm. um, but oftentimes I do that sort of first thing in the morning or at night. Morning, yeah. Yeah, and then um, and then uh, in terms of my own recipe development, for I have a column each month, and then occasionally um, we'll find time to do special stuff. So usually that's weekends. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, just to have that sort of focused time to sort of cook start to finish. How do you brainstorm? I mean, we have our own process here. I've talked to other editors, but do you have a general idea meeting with some of your writers? Because I love those. Those are like the best part of our jobs. Like I love an ideas meeting. It's like so fun. So we have um, ideas meetings with our editors. And then we also have, and then I also do ideas meetings with writers. And cool. gosh, you know, something I'm really looking forward to, one of my favorite ideas meetings with the editors was (laughs) we did a an offsite outdoors over cool. the summer because we hadn't it, this we'd been doing it all by Zoom you know and yeah. like shared docs and um, but the natural flow of ideas that comes from sitting around a table together is really really great um, and the same is true of, you know um, with the writers you know we tend to just talk back and forth uh, usually by video conferencing um, but one of our writers we went for a walk in Central Park. And yeah, so I'm hoping, hoping, hoping to be able to do more of that. Um, But right now it's mainly, yeah, virtual and with the editors and with the writers and and editors and writers and and just sort of always keep the communication flowing as as ideas and stories develop. You mentioned your monthly column and you write occasionally as well. Do you get deadline anxiety, honest? Um, Yeah, absolutely. Of course, yeah. I was like... (laughs) It took me a really long time. I was a super nerd um, sort of throughout high school and college. I was like the person who had like a draft ready two yeah. weeks before. And, um, you know, I still do my very, very, very best to meet my deadlines, especially because I'm also an editor. So I know how important that is for the editor. Um, but I think only in the last, gosh, four or five years, I realized like actually sometimes it's better to take a beat and wait if if it's not there. Right. Yeah. Like if you're just trying to like force something and you're not, uh, it's not there. For me, for me, I think the part of the writing process that takes the longest is the thinking, <laughs> is the sort of just circling the ideas in my head and like, okay, what is the outline? What is the story? What is the outline? What is the story? And um, I am so grateful for my brilliant colleagues. I've, um, you know, I have regulators, but every once in a while, you know, we switch around yeah. you know, just to many people's schedules and, and every single person is always. Um, made me help me think more clearly, help me write more clearly, helped articulate, you know, whatever themes um, we're trying to get across, and and certainly have caught, <laughs> yeah, have caught um, mistakes big and small. I have to ask you, you do you work with particular writers? Or are you doing general top edits? I know we're getting into a little bit of the weeds here, listener, but are you are you assigned to certain writers, or are you are you doing general top edits, headline deck stuff? Yeah, so. 
Um, wh- one of the things I really love about our team and the way Emily Weinstein has led us is that we really collaborate as a team. And so oftentimes the way our um, the way we assign edits and editors is we do have we we do each have certain writers. So I, I edit Eric Kim, for example. Right. But, you know, if there's a particular week where I'm really slammed with X, Y and Z, then, you know, um, somebody else will will take that over. But um, but yeah, we do have we do have particular writers. Um, one of my primary roles is um, assigning. And so oftentimes I'll work with uh, a writer and a recipe developer to start um, and to start sort of getting those ideas around and then and then have them actually, you know, go ahead and get started on this story. And, and then when the story actually comes in again, sort of just depending on scheduling, you know, I'll catch up whoever, uh, you know, somebody else is going to take over as the mm-hmm. first editor. I'll catch them up on like, hey, here's what this is, should be. Here's where we want it to land. And uh, do you read the comments in the app? I asked Eric this as well. I mean, there's, I think the, the, the New York Times, NYT cooking fans are real fans. I do read them, but honestly, I read them as an editor. I read them to catch, um, to catch anything, you mm-hmm. know, we're one of the things about NYT cooking is that um, we actually do continue to edit even after recipes are published. So I read the comments to see if some if if you start to see like five, six comments of people saying like I do not understand what step two is telling me to do, then I'll call you know call on the editors or the developer and be like, hey, like we need to edit step two. Like obviously this is not clear or like. Uh, you know, oh, wait, is this ingredient the same thing as this other ingredient? And you see a few people ask that, and you realize, oh, gosh, we should have mentioned that, and then we'll mm-hmm. add that. Our recipes go through such a rigorous process that, of course, in theory, there should be no mistakes um, yeah. by the time they're published. But uh, but for sure, sometimes maybe we're using language that isn't clear, yeah. or we're putting the steps in an order where maybe in another order it'd be easier for home cooks or in the ingredient list, you know. And measurements should be flipped. You know, maybe the number of apples should come before the weight of the apples. So, so I do read the comments actually both to. Um, I I do I am inspired by I love hearing how home cooks make recipes their own. That's really fun. But I'm often scanning for like, okay, like is there anything here that we should do to make this recipe even more. Uh, yeah. usable or user-friendly. I mean, recipes, you could think about recipes as software and, and like like fundamentally, I mean, they need updates. Yeah. I want to get into home cooking. Like, I'd like to just hear, we're recording this in, in early September. Um, I'm not sure when we're going to run this, but we're getting in that, we're that bridge season between summer and fall in the East Coast where we are. And I'd like to hear first, um, you mentioned off mic that you were working on some Thanksgiving content. What what are you thinking about right now? Like right now, uh, are you thinking about fall, winter, or are you thinking further? And what are some specific like recipes that you're working on? I'd, be, I'd just love to hear. I'm thinking right here, right now, fall. I'm thinking a lot about Thanksgiving all the time. I'm thinking yeah. about the holiday season, but I'm actually also thinking into January. So one of the things that I've really enjoyed about going – um, back to newspapers, I'd been in magazines for a long time. Was you know in, in the magazine world, there was a very there was a very regular cycle, month to month to month to month. Um, and at the newspaper, and with you know that's a digital product, really is just this constant. Like there's a constant flow of of um, what you're thinking about. So um, so we're we're really like deep in Thanksgiving now. But I think what I've been thinking about. A lot for the fall and and for the winter is not just the holiday cooking, but is really the home cooking. And and I have been thinking it's not so much how do we do it different, but like how do we make it new and fresh and exciting again, but also doable. And I think one of the things that I love 
most about my uh, colleagues and, and uh, you know, on the cooking on the cooking team, we have a group of editors who are dedicated to the cooking content, um, and they're just a wonderfully empathetic group of people who really understand what people need at home yeah. <laughs> and want at home. So, how do we balance uh, recipes that are so simple? Um, because when you know, at the end of the day, you're exhausted or you're busy, but balancing that with what is what is new and fresh and exciting, right? We're coming out of this crazy period of time in mm -hmm. the world. Where nothing feels exciting about cooking. We really, you know, we ha do you ever want to eat more comfort food again? I don't, you know, nah. yes yeah. and no. Like, yes, because you always do. But gosh, when something fresh and new and exciting. So all of our developers, um, you know, yeah. certainly on staff, like Melissa and Yuanda and Eric on staff and, and uh, and then we have developers who develop a lot. First, Ali, uh, Kei Chun is mm -hmm. another one whom I knew from Gourmet Days. And they're so great at thinking of like, you know, sure. So how do we make something feel fresh and exciting and get you like in the kitchen again um, that isn't going to require, you know, 20 pots and pans and trips so to seven markets. True. And and so we're always, yeah, we're always trying to to figure out what are, you know, what are those moments? What, what can we do? What can we offer? And so certainly for... Um, all the holiday stuff that we're doing, like, oh, you're having you're having people over, you know. But also just like, okay, it's what day is today? Tuesday. It's Tuesday today. And like, what are you going to do for dinner? Like, we're, we're always trying to answer um, all those questions. I love that about New York Times cooking. It, it really is for home cooks. Yeah. And the thing I do say, you know, uh, all of our developers, you know, I, I should mention Alexa Weibel on, on our staff. Um, she's actually an editor, but also a great developer. And so so she develops for us, too. The hardest thing to do, the hardest recipes to do are the simplest ones. Oh, gosh. For sure. So true. For sure. Like, can you make something delicious with 23 ingredients and a sous chef? Absolutely. You know, <laughs> or whatever. Like, having somebody do your dishes. Um but yeah, I really value how hard our developers work to to take something um, and make it so delicious. But it feels really effortless. Hetty McKinnon is another one of our developers yeah. who does that so well. Like it just feels so like easy peasy. But then when you taste it, like you have all these different textures and flavors. And testers too. I you know I don't want to neglect our testers yeah. uh, do such a great job. Like just yesterday, one of our testers, uh, you know, I think I'd written something like until there's an inch of water, and I had written how much water that was for me. She's like, well, you know, for my pot, it was half a cup more. And I think mm -hmm. maybe you should just give the amount of water. I was like, oh, that's a really good point. Because she's like, clearly my sauce is thinner. And it, just like you said, I yeah. was like, yeah, wow, thanks so much. I have to ask you about ingredients in books. Two separate topics, but anything that's on like the tip of your tongue right now as you're looking into fall, we're entering the fall cookbook season. So maybe a couple cookbooks that you're enjoying. Um, I know you're biased. You can very well be biased. Um, and also, yeah, ingredients. Like, I have to ask you, like, something. Like, what's the new Duca? I, I did ask that. That's that's actually not a real question. That was a joke. Well, I will say um, Melissa's book just came out. And, yeah. gosh, it's so lovely. She's so masterful at doing just what we're talking about. Like, um, simple with, with minimal mm -hmm. uh, work. I You know, it's a little bit hard for me to say right at this moment, like, ones I'm really excited about because – you know, we apply the same rigor to our cookbook, end of year cookbook review, as we do um, our recipes and our stories. And we're right in the thick of it right now. Okay. So I've actually just been looking at like hundreds of galleys and, and early copies. We will await your your general thoughts in a, a tidy article at the end of the year. What about an <laughs> ingredient? What are we thinking right now? 
So <laughs> one of the things that I really feel really strongly about with like ingredients, both in terms of ingredients that we use in our recipes and the way that we talk about them and write about them. And I think this goes all the way back to what I was talking about before, like how I got into this or why I got into this. I sort of hate the notion of ingredients being hot or trending or special or new because, yeah, I very much grew up with like, like, um, I grew up with fish sauce. I'm Cantonese, but like I grew up with fish sauce and then I'm like, oh, fish sauce, you know, new. And I was like, what? This is not new. And I, I just think it's so relative, the idea of like an ingredient being new or hot or like, have you tried? And it's true that there are a lot of people who haven't tried a lot of things. And so so that is a totally valid experience for, for salmon to have. But I think to cast it in that light or to look at it in that way, to have that sort of framework, um, you know, I I don't love it. I think othering is a terrible problem with food writing and trying to like say something is hot or new is is makes my stomach turn a bit. We educate. actually think about that and talk about that so much and we edit so carefully and yeah. and consult so many levels, you know, spellings, ingredients, descriptions and and trying to find that balance between trying to change the framework through which we're talking about food and ingredients mm-hmm. and techniques where um again understanding that this may be the most familiar uh, intimate sort of technique or ingredient or dish for some, and for some it may be absolutely new. And so, always trying to find that balance of, of obviously conveying the information as well as understanding that the audience, how vast you know what a range of experiences the audience has. So, um, yeah, so it's something we just we spend a lot of time yeah. just thinking about. And um, and the way I, I often put it to my editors and writers is, you know, it's not it's not actually necessarily about background. Well. It is about very, but it's not necessarily about like race or heritage. It's it's almost a way of thinking about it. Really, is thinking about culinary background. Like think about the range of people you know in terms of how much or how little they know about food at all, mm-hmm. and that's who that's who you're writing to, right? So you could be writing to someone who comes from a particular culture and you could be writing about that cuisine it's very possible they have never ever heard of this dish right yeah so you you really want to just think about the whole range of experiences that people have Mm -hmm. uh, in the kitchen or with food in general well said thank you that's really articulate thank you for pointing that out because i think getting to the point of like the actual cooking and the subtext being important but not the foundation of the recipe is important um your business is good at the new york times it seems like the cooking app like is popular more popular than ever. It's like the kind of thing that changes stock prices. <laughs> I mean, is it, I'm joking, but like clearly your the NYT cooking, the app, the paid subscription is really important to the New York Times. Is that, is that my, like, it's a big part of the business. You know, I think as an editor, I work really hard to just remember sort of why we do what we do, which is to help people mm-hmm. cook, <laughs> to help yeah. people live richer lives through through food. And, um, you know, and, and I think that's something that, um, you know, for all of, for all of um, you know, all the people on my team and, and as we talk about our, our recipes and again, like the rigor with which we bring to our recipe editing, it's like we're doing this, we're doing this to um, – yeah, to help people mm-hmm. cook and enjoy food more, and and I and one of the things that we do think a lot about as editors, we we absolutely want to expand our audience. We absolutely want to get more people on the app and more people cooking because they yeah. just think it's just an amazing way to experience the world. You know, we very much see cooking and the app as not 
you know, not like an extension of the New York Times. We really see it as a New York Times. And so, you know, when we're editing, when we're talking to our writers, like we're like every top note here, like this is like a tiny, tiny food story. This is like a hundred word food story. And and we we want everyone to not only like learn about um, what we do from just reading, you know, those top notes or looking at the photos, but then actually experiencing it. Like what we feel like, we feel like we're actually giving you news to eat. Right? Yeah, I love that. But your audience is so massive. It's not just a hundred word head note and photo. I mean, you're getting, you're reaching the world. And it seems to me that home cooks are getting younger and younger. I, when we started Taste in 17 and I worked in food editorial for 15 years prior, like it was an older audience. I don't know if you agree with me. It seemed like food, re- like recipes and cookbooks were for older. Do you feel like it's getting younger? Um, I hope it is. And that's Me what too. I mean. Like we I have so. like they're huge swaths of like um the world that we're like, gosh, we really yeah, we want younger people to to be on the app. We want um yeah, we want to reach people who haven't gotten here yet. Um and we want to, you know, we want to do it by enticing them with things that they didn't even know they wanted, but also by offering dishes that maybe, you know, that maybe they do want that, you know, um that we haven't yet had. And so so we're always thinking of all those things. But I I love like I love hearing or seeing people who are younger getting engaged with um, get engaged with our app. And certainly with um, we have a an amazing social media team. So getting engaged through our content on YouTube or on TikTok or on Instagram. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and it's really exciting to see all of these sort of pieces melding together um, with NYT cooking. And um, yeah, and we're really we're just excited to to try to keep growing, you know, and even what days? Like in a few weeks, gosh, we're launching this. Um, I'm, oops, I'm so excited. Um, we're, we're starting these. We have a, a cooking festival in New York City. Cool. But even leading up to that, we're doing these events uh, across the country to actually get to meet users in oh, real fun. life. Yeah, yeah, it's super Great. fun. And then we have like these cooking kits that you can order and you get um, – just the pantry, like stable yeah, ingredients, fun. which is super fun. Or like what you're talking about. Are any of these like the hot and trendy ingredients? Uh, I'm not going <laughs> to phrase that way, but they're delicious ingredients. Sure. They're like chosen and curated. And I think that's sometimes, that's the thing that I sometimes miss working in food media instead of working in a restaurant kitchen. It's like, I want to feed you. I want to meet yeah. you. I want to like talk to you. And so, yeah. So Cooking it's editorial. super fun that we like are, are um, doing these sort of like NYT cooking experiences where you can actually like come and hang out with with the writers and the editors and also chefs that we're we're collaborating with and yeah. So how many uh, minutes a day are you on TikTok? Zero. I know I should be. I feel like I should be. I I think I mean we had Bettina McAlintal on the sh- on the show. Uh, she is big on TikTok and like studies it and writes about it for Eater. And I I just think TikTok excites me. It certainly is younger, but it excites me because it shows a brand new audience, meaning they're brand new to cooking. Oh, absolutely. Like engaging with food, and that's cool. I love that, you know, one of the things I really love about it is how it can how can, how it can really help bring dishes to light in a way Gosh, that, yeah. that I feel like, you know, it's, it's amazing. Like, and this is a minute ago, but who doesn't know what birria is now? I know, like, right? There's all these, there are all these, Kid, like teenagers making birria and I'm like that's amazing like that's really wonderful right this dish has been around for so long well you grew up you know near East I grew LA up with where birria, right. so like, much great birria, yeah. birria there um, but 
but the way that it took over the world, really, it was like an international phenomenon. And, and Tejal wrote a lovely piece on it for us. And We're dipping tacos. Yeah, yeah, exactly, you know? exactly. So I do, I do appreciate that, like, wow, it can really, <laughs> in food, it can really help um, help get the word out on, on certain dishes. Okay, so speaking of Tejal, in early September, Tejal drops a story about recipe question mark and the re- recipe reply guy. I thought it was a great piece. I think it covered a lot of things that get discussed on social media and in Slack channels at publications. And the idea that when you produce a piece of content, you put it on social media, it could be a photo, it could be a reel, it could be a TikTok. There's somebody, she gendered it as male, and sh- fair enough, there's probably plenty of males, plenty of all genders. There's someone who always replies Recipe question mark. Recipe. Where's the recipe? And I thought the piece was interesting. What do you think about the recipe question mark idea? So I I need to, you know, the disclaimer here is that I am almost never, really almost never on social media. I don't see it as much, I think, as other people are very engaged on on those platforms. And I don't see the threads I follow. And so I'm not I'm not quite as attuned to the cadence Mm -hmm. of what that means. You know, the one the one thing I had shared with Tejal when, when we were talking about this early on was I found it really interesting. You know, for me, when I check my Instagram once in a blue moon mm-hmm. and somebody will ask for a recipe, I was like, oh, that's so nice. That's my gut reaction. It's like, oh, that's so nice. You'd like to cook this dish. Of course. Here's the recipe. Um, and I was saying, oh, the one thing that I've had happen in my experience that I find really interesting is that sometimes those conversations will continue with like, well, can you then also give me a recipe for this? And can you tell me how to make this thing? I was like, whoa, okay. Uh, this is really interesting that this, there's this intimacy in this uh, exchange of uh, of uh, making requests. Yeah, <laughs> annoying intimacy for some. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, sort of, it, it's, it's always really interesting um, to me. Um, and so I have to confess, like, I, I, I would encourage everyone to read Tejal's piece. I think it's really, really fascinating. And I think it, it does speak a lot to I kind of agree with you. My initial instinct is that, yes, it's annoying, but it is almost like an extension of the like, of the thumbs up. It's like they're almost co-signing on their love of the piece of content yeah. so much that they're saying, I'd like a recipe. I come at, like, that. that's my initial take, but I think if you read the piece, and I'll link to it in the show notes, it's... It's really fascinating. It, I'm, she really articulates something that I think it boiled a lot of blood around the internet, and I, <laughs> I, I see it. So. Yeah. In my in my very you know um, optimistic and idealistic worldview, I'm like, I hope everybody who's asking for a recipe just wants to cook it. It's my my hope is my hope. Though you know, I think one of the things I really love about NYT cooking that I've thought more and more about is. You know, actually, it's totally fine if you don't want to cook this. It's totally fine if you're not interested in in going to the store and buying these ingredients. I, a lot of times, you know, um, I feel like it's. I hope it's fun for our users just to look and see what's there, just to sort of scan, just to, even if it's just to look through the photos. Our photo editor is so brilliant, and she she works with so many teams to get all these beautiful images. Um, but I like to think of the app or I hope that people use the app almost just as like, um, yeah, just a way to learn as entertainment and not necessarily having to cook a whole dish start to finish. But I think of the same way I'm working on a cookbook with Dookie Hong right now, Korea World. And, and we think about the same as like, it's almost like a mood board. It's almost yeah, like an exactly. extension of knowledge. Exactly. And I look at your app and I think of the same thing. I obviously can't cook everything I right, star right. or save to the recipe box, but 
It's true. And back to the recipe question mark, I think it's maybe somebody who just wants a little more information um, about the cool thing that's happening. But I see the point of Tejal and many other. It is can be quite annoying <laughs> when it's simply that. I, I will confess early on, like, you know, early on with res- earlier recipe sites, I've you know worked in a number of magazines mm-hmm. and I've had digital extensions with recipe sites. I used to get, as a recipe developer, I used to get annoyed. I used to get annoyed if somebody would write in and say, well, you know, this dish was really bad. I mean, mm. I used chicken instead of fish and I used, <laughs> you know, Classic. I used olives instead of tomatoes and I used whatever, you know, Classic. like whatever crazy things. And I remember I used to feel um, like, well, then you didn't make the dish and how, you know, how yeah. can you respond like that? But now when I see those sorts of comments on NYT cooking, maybe this is just, I don't know, this is some sort of evolution. Optimism in the Evolution, air. optimism, yeah. you know, where I'm like, cool, great, go for it, you know, like, um, but I do think, but I do think the spirit of that has changed because I think, I remember, I, you know, these comments used to have sort of a, a very mean-spirited quality towards yeah. the the recipe and therefore the recipe creator of like, well, this isn't good, you yeah. know, whereas now it feels more like, hey, I made this and I made all these changes and it was okay. And the, and and I think, you know, in, in that sense, that that stance is a little bit more like, well, this is what I did and this is what I think of it's it, almost as opposed co- to like you gave me a It's bad. almost collegial within the comments section of NYT oh, yeah, Cooking. Absolutely. I, I like that about it. I love it. that. I love that. Mm-hmm. It's a community. You really have built a community absolutely. from whole cloth. It's absolutely. pretty cool. Uh, Genevieve, we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast if there was a dream cookbook or food culture book project you could work on without the burden of <laughs> budget, meaning you have unlimited money, the advance was like a billion dollars. Or time, meaning you didn't have a job. What is your dream cookbook project? When when I saw this question, you know, and I, and I thought about it, you know, the question I had back for you is, well, is time travel involved? Can time travel be involved if there was a real dream cookbook? I don't know if this is just because. Have you seen Russian Doll? Yes. I usually watch Russian Doll and then yeah. you watch Palm Springs and have just been thinking a lot about time travel and time loops and all this. Both are great. I love Palm Springs. Yes. So my dream cookbook experience would be to be able to travel in time and to see dish, like really, you know, see cooking evolve, see how it's changed. You know, we study it all the time. I love going into the Times archives and other, um, you know, they're great libraries with old cookbooks. Um, But my dream cookbook would be um, to do, you know, a, a sort of evolution of cooking. I'd probably, I'd probably choose maybe like one cuisine or one place or something wow. just to, to have a, a cohesive book, right? I'm still thinking like a, still thinking like an editor. I'm like, well, what is that? Like Quantum know? Leap? Yeah, something like that, you know, would that be amazing? Right, because we can research it and we can do interviews and we can look at archival yeah. footage, but I want to be in the kitchen. I want to be, I want to be standing next to, you know, I want to be there. Where's the there on the spot, Genevieve? Where do you want to go? Are we talking about like Milan, 1950 post-war, building up from the ashes? Are we talking French Nouvelle? I don't know if you ever watched, this is one of the shows I was obsessed (laughs) with as a kid, is Great Chefs of the World and Great Chefs, Great Cities. Those books too, yeah. Right, those feel like they're very much of a time and place. I would like to be in those kitchens (gasps) at that time. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that I, I increasingly want to explore more is my, I was, you know, born and raised in the U.S. and Chinese-American. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think Chinese cuisine is, um, it's not underrated by any means, but it has such a deep, deep, deep history that in the Western world, we don't 
get as much of an education, you know, you know, with that because because of just really the language barrier, ultimately the cultural barrier. Um, you know, a lot was lost in the Cultural Revolution, to put it mildly. So it'd be amazing to to go through through that time loop. I guess you know, I guess the thing is that I would also have to acquire much more intense language skills than I have now, but. But I need the time machine. But that would be my dream. I mean, so I guess you know, short of that, I guess it would be researching something of the same. But um, but yeah, I love seeing how food evolves and changes. You know, again, like something we hear about every day is like, well, this isn't. You did it this way. This isn't how it's done. This isn't how it's supposed to be done. This is, and sometimes it's not right. Well, not hopefully not. I think we do some, but sometimes there's stuff out there that um, maybe isn't quite right. But. I think the way I look at it is like, this is cooking evolves, food evolves, communities evolve. And um, yeah, this is how dishes change. It's software. Genevieve Coe, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.